Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. I cannot believe this episode today, you guys. I'm so excited. I hope you'll share this enthusiasm with me. You might not be as excited as me, but I, uh, I'm very happy. Glenn Keane is my guest today. Glenn is a legendary animator. He started at Disney back in 1974, trained under many of the animators that had worked directly with Walt Disney, went on to be one of the most prolific animators during the Disney Renaissance period, Little Mermaid. He created and animated Ariel, created and animated The Beast, created and animated Aladdin, created and animated Pocahontas, created and animated Tarzan. I'm talking about the characters in this case, not the movie, but those titular characters of all those movies he created and animated, and Rapunzel as well from Tangled. So quite the history with Disney. If you've heard my show at all, you probably know I'm a big Disney fan. I've talked to Imagineers on this show. Eddie Sato was one of my early, early guests, maybe like episode four or five. He was an Imagineer. Tom K. Morris, another Imagineer I talked to. I've swapped Disney Park stories with Ginger Z and John Tartaglia and Joshua Turchin. And now I am talking to the man who made movies that uh, were with me my whole childhood. So I'm super excited just about that piece of it. But if that's not enough, Glenn left Disney in 2012. He went on to form his own animation studio. His latest movie is Over the Moon. It's on Netflix. You can watch it right now. Go stream it right after you listen to this, of course. And it's a really awesome movie. It's actually Glenn's first time directing, so we talked about that. And it's a movie that was mid-production when the shutdown happened. So there's a crazy COVID tie-in, and he talks a lot about figuring out the workflow for that film. And part of what made me so excited about Over the Moon was that it was a story told from a Chinese point of view and that it was an Asian cast. All the voice actors in this film, or at least the main principal ones, are all Asian actors. And of course, there's a huge history of Asian animation, but in terms of Asian representation in more Western projects, you know, big mainstream things like Disney or, you know, Pixar, DreamWorks, there's just not as much of that. So to have a film featuring Asian stories, Asian actors for a Western audience was really exciting for me. I've talked about it before on the show. My grandfather was from the Philippines. So, you know, there's a part of me certainly that identifies as Asian and gets very excited to see that part of it. And the story of this film, it is deep. It is heartfelt. It's about a young girl whose mother dies, not unexpectedly. The The implication in the film is that she's sick, although we're not sure with what, but we see a, a slow decline over the course of, you know, a couple of months or year, the daughter sees her mother die. And then it's about moving on, moving through grief and moving beyond grief. And uh, she ends up going to the moon as part of that story. And there's just a lot of cool things that happen in it. So it is a really cool movie. Go check it out on Netflix, Over the Moon, Glenn's first feature as a director. But just prior to this film, he made a short film with Kobe Bryant that was called Dear Basketball, which was made when Kobe was retiring from the Lakers. And it's kind of eerie when you watch it now because little did we know that Kobe would die unexpectedly at the beginning of 2020. And this film suddenly is not just a representation of his career, but his life and what drives him. So Kobe worked very closely with Glenn on it. They won an Oscar for it in 2018, and John Williams scored it. It is a really, really cool little short. And uh, yeah, a lot of parallels, interestingly, between Over the Moon and Dear Basketball, which we get to. And one interesting thing that I learned about Glenn in this process is his father, Bill Keane, was actually a cartoonist that uh, made the Family Circus cartoons which I remember I was a paper boy for most of middle and high school back when there were physical newspapers and you could walk around the neighborhood and, you know, toss them onto neighbors' porches. And I used to love reading The Family Circus. So I had no idea that uh, Glenn's father created that. So 
art is in his blood, I guess. It's pretty cool. So animation history, directing, working during a quarantine, some Disney history. There's a lot of really cool stuff in this uh, in this episode. I still can't get over that Glenn was here. I guess you could say I'm over the moon about it. <laughs> Sorry. Had to do it. All right. Here it is. My interview with Glenn Keane. Uh, so I want to start by just asking how this quarantine period has been for you these last, you know, seven, eight months. Yeah. So the last seven and eight, eight months have been, gosh, it's, it seems like it's a uh, sunset that never sets. Mm. <laughs> just, That's an interesting way to put it. You just keep looking for the end of it, but it never comes. Yeah. It just keeps going a little further, a little further. And when we started, I mean, it was like I think the second week in March, something like that. And I remember my producer, we were well into the middle of Over the Moon. I mean, well into the final deadline dates of right. Over the Moon. And uh, my producer was saying, um, we have to leave now. Wow. I said, what? Yeah. No, Netflix wants everybody out of the building, like right now. Within an hour, everybody was gone. I mean, the coffee cups are still there. Coats wow. are still on the chairs. Yeah. The, we have not been back. We were, you know, hundreds of people working at that point up in Vancouver and here. And so there was this question of like, okay, how are we going to do this? Is this possible? And what amazed me was the desire of everyone to make it work, yeah. no matter what, somehow. And that has really been such a big part of, of moving forward is people just refusing to let this stop them from no matter no matter how, no matter what way we find a way. And so we finished the movie and yeah, I, I, it's really a remarkable thing with the human spirit, uh, seeing it be able to overcome blowing up the whole team and sending us all to our our homes. Um, at one point we had, uh, I think in Vancouver, like a couple hundred people all working on getting the movie done. And they all had to go home and we had five, I believe, at home work kits wow. uh, that Sony did. But by the end of the week or the following week, everyone was working at home with a at-home kit. And I mean, really remarkable coming together to make it all make it all work. So you asked me how how I feel at you know at this point after eight months, I'm amazed at the human spirit's ability to keep going. Yeah, it's it's a theme that I've discovered a lot on this podcast, actually, is just sort of the the vitalness of art during this time. And, you know, people don't think of it as essential, I think, until it gets taken away and sort of, yeah, just that desire to keep creating, to keep putting good things out in the world. It's it's hard to tamp that down. And it's it's so important, almost more now than ever. Right. Yeah. And no one wants to be the weak link. Right. Everybody wants to participate and somehow make it make it even better uh like i was amazed at the how important the the time before the pandemic was things i took for granted right we were already prepared for this uh because uh, i was directing the movie in an office at netflix but we had people all around the world i had my what i call my window to the world monitor uh -huh. and i'd be talking to somebody in spain or holland or france or canada or new york or shanghai and and you got used to connecting to people that way and how i i knew people's idiosyncrasies i knew their the way creatively they would speak and what how to interpret their ideas and that became so so important when suddenly everything was blown up you how much you relied on the kind of behind the scenes fabric of relationships yeah where you are you're connecting with people you're looking into their eyes and those pauses mean a lot and like for me i i went up to lake arrowhead up here where i am now yeah and I had to keep 
directing the film, but my internet speed was hideous. I mean, <laughs> you should be at like around, you know, two, 400. I was at 0.7. Oh, wow. And I'm taking a look at people's animation or there's, we're having conversations and then the person would freeze in the middle of it, you know, and just for the longest period of time, their face would be frozen. And yet they were just telling me something, you know, like the important thing with the lighting on this shot is to get this glow that. <laughs> and then they'd kick back in. So that's the, the main thing to really get that kind of uh, shimmering effect. Yeah, you know, and I go, okay, the glow, the shimmering effect, okay. I think I can piece <laughs> together what they were talking about. Right. Um, yeah, it was it was really remarkable. Well, I feel like there's two kind of simultaneous challenges, especially in animation. Obviously the creative piece and, and you know, just the collaboration and stuff and, and missing that part of it. But the technical challenge, you know, like I come from the video world and we're at the point now where the majority of stuff you can you can cut pretty decently on like a MacBook Pro or something or, you know, maybe a higher end desktop computer. But for animation, you still need you need powerful processors and rendering and things like that. Right. I mean, like, I'm just curious, like on both those fronts, the creative side and the technical side, you know, can you how specific, I guess, you can get about how you met both those challenges? Well, we at uh, at Sony, we had a incredible guy, Dave Smith, who was head of the visual effects. And they found the technology, the, the stations that, that were developed, allowing people to be connected to Sony there. Uh -huh. They're still connected into their main system, but being able to work from home, yeah. you know, that there's, it's like a gigantic octopus that lets you, you work from afar, but you still needed that central system. I mean, this is how I understood it, but. For me, I was dealing with the, the creative choices and decisions and uh, really relying on people that really knew how to do that. So I'm kind of talking beyond my, my real knowledge bank in terms of sure. what technically they actually did. But I had people who were really, really smart and sharp, like our production designer. She was in the midst of doing all the lighting and the color you know, I'm looking at lighting and color on my MacBook Pro. Right. And they're surprisingly accurate in terms of, you know, the color. But there was still these tiny details that were really, really important to our production designer. So she had to get better equipment to, to be able to judge that. And then, the you know, final mix was really, really a challenge. Um, we were actually carrying big monitors around my co-director john cars had this great monitor that he would carry with him that you know you had to fit it into the whole back end of your car but we could actually judge the color of the, the shots wow. so we would you know have a, have like a a moment where you get together with wearing a mask and you take a look at how it's playing together where you could see it and then he would drive off. We started calling the, the monitor Bernie because it was like week, weekends with Bernie. <laughs> That's great. Are you watching it like outdoors then in the back of his car or is he hauling it like into each person's house and stuff? Well, the one time was in my living room and another time was in the lobby of Technicolor. You know, and there's nobody there. Yeah. So there's just these wherever you can do it. Right. You are safe and you got you're, the space. you're making it work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we were all very, very careful. Well, that's yeah. I, I'm just thinking, too, like so much of, of animation is is screening the work and being able to see it on a big screen in a screening room together. Right. Like, I wonder how were you able to sort of recreate that feedback loop that normally happens on a film where there's, you know, 30 or 50 people sitting around judging a shot? We would have a moment where we could see it individually because. Uh -huh nothing was playing at a perfect speed. Mm. We would have it sent to each other and we have uh, what's called a sync sketch where we could watch shots play and I could do drawings actually over top of it. Oh, cool. And so that could be sent immediately, but that would play real time, but it would only play one shot at a time. And we would have a whole group of us 
judging that, but you're talking about more of like a screening. And what we what we were able to do is send each other so you would have a screening that you could take a look at on your own, then come back with notes. I mean, I would just have many, many notes that I I had made and would relate those verbally. And uh, we had some great people taking notes, you know, and commun- make, following it up, making sure whatever corrections had to be made were followed up and made. I mean, so much of it is not letting anything fall through the cracks. Right. You're just responding to something that you're seeing there and you can't really, well, you can't go into the building and, and make sure that the shot's working. You're right. just trusting that it's being corrected the way you want it to be. Yeah. It's a lot of faith in your team and each person's individual talents, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I had fantastic people in Celine De Rameau and John Cars and Dave Smith and people that I I knew were much smarter than me at doing the technology. What I needed to do was stay focused on the emotional arc of the characters and the performance so that it remained true. Yeah. Well, and that was something I wanted to ask you about, too, because I know you've directed some shorts prior to this, but this is your first feature length directing project. And I wonder sort of how you how you fell into that role specific to to this time, I guess, and just sort of, you know, figuring out that place, I guess, as as a feature director now and not as an animator. So I I was taught by my mentors, Walt Disney called them his nine old men. Sure. They referred to themselves as directing animators. Hmm. They would take sections of the movie and uh, do design, animation, and work with the layout and the cinematography and recording. And so that was how I learned animation. So through all of my career, I, I would take sequences in movies and, you know, like Ariel sings part of your world. So I, I bored that and I work with, you know, pretty much every aspect of that. But I didn't I didn't have to worry about how the movie was going to get across the goal line. No. I just had to make sure <laughs> my part worked. Right. But in this case, yes, now it was up to me and I had to have a map. And I had a fantastic script uh, by Audrey Wells, who wrote Over the Moon with such passion. I mean, there was such a message to this movie that she knew she would not even live to see the end of this film and really wrote it as a message tool for her daughter to move forward in life and learn to love others. And so it was, it was quite a challenge. That was a a very important thing for me to have that map, that confidence, but I did a lot of storyboarding as well on Uh the film. So the things that I, I was strong at, I could jump in and I could do, you know, like, storyboarding, designing the characters, overseeing animation, all of those things were areas that I leaned into. And then I would fortify myself with other people who were really great at cinematography and uh, had an incredible editor. So really, he through this, this film, I started to practice. Well, through my entire career, I've been mentoring others. Uh-huh. But this time it was reverse mentorship. I surrounded myself with people who were in a lot of ways smarter, better. They had great skills that I I didn't have. And I relied heavily upon them all the way through this. And yet, you know, for me, it's still about living in the skin of the characters. And I believe that that's where the audience comes to one of these films is do I believe in what this character believes? So it, to me, it was always about following the main character through this because she is the vehicle that everyone is going to experience uh, the movie through. Yeah. I, I want to ask you too, you mentioned Audrey Wells and her script for this. And just for a little more background for the listeners, um, she and, she had passed away from cancer at 58 about two years ago after writing this film. And I just want, and, and you guys dedicated the film to her too. I wonder your relationship with her, you know, through the development process and sort of knowing her diagnosis and, and having her pass away in this process, did that, did that change how you approach this at all? Or, you know, did you, 
did you feel her presence sort of as you were working on this? Was it a drive at all to to get through it? I didn't know that she was dying of cancer at the beginning. Uh-huh. Uh, what reading the script, though, I I could see that there this was not just entertainment, but this there was a deep, deep drive and purpose to the script, which made me want to do this movie. Yeah, because uh, I had been developing something entirely different, and when. Melissa Cobb and Palin Chow proposed this to Jenny Rim and I to do this. So for a while, I was, you know, approaching it like she's a regular screenwriter who just has an incredible skill at bringing not only such weight to the story material, but also joy and fun. And I was really thankful for that. But then when I found out about Audrey's diagnosis and and seeing how this carried through into moments in the film where it was so important for her to communicate this this truth, you take it really seriously. When Kobe died uh, this year, yeah. that's when crazy 2020 happened and right. started for me. I realized, wow, both these films were final messages uh, from Over the Moon and Dear Basketball. And both these people were so passionate to communicate what they wanted. And yet you have to take it into yourself. It has to come from you. You can't be just their hands doing it. Um, And I remember having a conversation with Audrey just a few months before she passed away. She was sitting on my couch in my studio there, and we were talking about Wizard of Oz because this film, there's a lot of ways, is like Wizard of Oz. Mm. They goes on this journey of healing to come back to face reality with everything that she's learned in that fantasy world. Right. And I described it that way, and I described it as a dream for Fei Fei to come back. And Audrey says, no, it wasn't. I said, what you mean? So Fei-Fei really does go to the moon and there really is a goddess on the other side of the moon. And yes, of course. I said, okay. And Audrey's got this fire in her eyes. And I said, well, what about Wizard of Oz? I mean, Dorothy, she goes to Oz and comes back. I mean, that's obviously like a dream. I mean, she hits her head and she said, no, it isn't. No, it wasn't. I said, what, you believe that really happened? She said, well, yes, don't you? Hmm. <laughs> and I, uh, I realized, wow, this whole movie started off for me with a talk I gave at Annecy about thinking like a child. Uh-huh. And I didn't realize it, but I was auditioning for this because in the audience was Pei Lin and May- Melissa, and they had over the moon script. And they realized that's the guy that we want to direct this. But I was talking about how kids have an ability to believe the impossible is possible. Right. And how that is the key to creative longevity is never letting go of that belief. You know, the kids say, Let's play make-believe. I mean, they can make themselves believe. And I was looking at Audrey realizing, wow, there it is. Yeah, There's that childlike spark of belief that is so necessary for this film to be successful. And so we both agreed, even though I was wrestling with the credibility of certain things, and Walt Disney was always saying that you have to have the plausible impossible yeah enough to make somebody believe so we both agreed that this film would run on the razor's edge of did it happen or didn't it happen you know that there would never be a nod to one way or the other right but there would be evidence for either one and that's exactly how we played it and we agreed upon that and i found that it was very important that i be honest with audrey that she wanted to engage. She wanted to argue to not argue for the sake of argument, but for the sake of making the movie better as as strong as it could be, because everything, it meant the world to her. Um, So anyway, that it, it was, 
it was quite a um, moment when we were recording uh, Philippa Sue in New York yeah. in the Chamber of Exquisite Sadness. That whole moment in there is when we we heard that Audrey mm. had passed away. And wow. it was um, so many things came together that felt like, wow, this is there's a purpose far beyond our understanding in doing this movie. Right. Wow. I mean, that that's such an emotional moment in the film, too. Just to to imagine getting the news at that moment. That's uh, yeah, it feels like there's a greater power at work there of some kind. That's that's wild. Um, you mentioned Dear Basketball in there, too. And I, I am curious, like I, I do see the parallels between that film that you made with Kobe Bryant and, and this project. But in that case, it was a celebration and there was no way that anybody could have known what his fate was at that time. He was retiring from basketball, but nobody knew that the end of his life was, you know, just a year or two away at that point. But in this case, going through the project, you were aware, obviously, of, of Audrey's passing and, you know, had two more years on the project at that point. Like, I, I guess I just wonder sort of how those two projects fit together in just in your head or in your heart, I guess, because they are both kind of culminations of, of people's lives and works. And you've had the privilege to work on two similar projects, I guess, back to back like that. Well, I think the privilege, the word privilege is the right word. It was an honor. Yeah. But I remember a moment on Dear Basketball where I was animating the final shot of Kobe walking away uh -huh. as the final words are just love Kobe as he signs off. And I'd animated him going into the tunnel and he goes into the dark and he disappears. And I thought, no, nah, that's not right. It's not right. I'm going to reanimate that. So I redid it. And this time I had him walk towards the light and the light kept getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And finally he disappeared into the light. Mm. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I sure hope Kobe doesn't mind, but it looks like I'm animating him dying yeah. and get moving on that this, his life is not going to go on. I mean, that was that hit me. and I was hoping he wasn't going to mind right. that uh, he never commented on it or anything. But that hit me when Kobe passed away. I remembered that. And it, I think it the similarity in those two things feels that there is a, um, a feeling of responsibility that you take, even not, I mean, for Kobe, the fact that he's asking me to animate something that represents something so precious to him as his career. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I told Kobe was, look, you've got the worst basketball player on <laughs> earth animating you. And he said, well, that's good because everything you can learn about basketball is through studying him. Yeah. And I did. And I studied and studied and studied. And and with Over the Moon, it was that same sense of, of weight of what you are carrying. And how do you communicate that in a way that is winsome and joyful? And the movie was not written as a musical. Right. But I quickly realized how necessary this music was going to be in this movie to lift those story moments in with emotion and joy and to communicate that in a way that kind of comes in the back door and you feel it and it's not so much an intellectual story as it is very much an emotional one that you, the journey we take you on yeah that that was true of Kobe's too i mean with dear basketball the, there's a moment where in the final moments, you see little six-year-old Kobe is on the court with adult Kobe, which was really the theme, that that child is still within you. Right. And all the way through Over the Moon, it was it was very much this childlike belief that Audrey Wells carried with her all the way through this movie. There was a real connection there of both of those creators of these stories. Yeah, that's that's interesting, just that that piece and we talked about it a little bit already too of just yeah having that kid in, alive inside of you and, and carrying that with you into adulthood 
I, I'm curious too to sort of contrast the two projects, but also sort of your bigger career, I guess, you know, the uh, deer basketball is very kind of rough in its execution. Almost. It's, it's all just kind of pencil animation, you know, it's not inked or background or anything. It's just, it's just the character animation done in pencil, um, which is obviously, you know, your background from Disney and stuff too, but over the moon is, is a 3d film. And I wonder like you having learned at, at the hand of the nine old men and, you know, having this, this great career in, in 2d animation, the whole world has moved to 3D now, and I just wonder how you take all those lessons that you learned from these great old pros and move them into that new realm. Like, I guess, is there a space for 2D anymore, or do you have to figure out how to translate those lessons over? Is everything just going to be 3D from now on? Well, first of all, you think about the history of art. I mean, thousands and thousands of years of drawing. And this little tiny slice of time that we're in yeah. does not remove drawing, uh, and it never will. Yeah. I mean, drawing, uh, what Michelangelo said, drawing, or as it is called by another name, design, is the root and fountainhead and substance of all architecture, painting, sculpture, and science. Mm. Let him who has attained this know that he has attained a great treasure and i still see that that drawing is the ultimate way of expressing something hidden inside of you uh-huh. in the simplest way i mean if simplicity is the ultimate sophistication then the pencil is the ultimate tool mm. and so in this movie i drew more in this movie than any film that i've ever done really? um, every shot there's drawing in every design of the characters, even in one sequence animating it by hand. But it was very important that we use drawing to clearly define these are the problems to solve. And I would do little sketches of the corners of Fei-Fei's mouth or the shape of the eyes or the way I felt the brows needed to go and to build that in the rigging and the design of the characters. And, and so I, in my career, anytime I've seen technology cross my path, it always forces me to be a better artist. Uh-huh. That's interesting. See, I never wanted to be an animator. I just wanted to be a sculptor, painter. Hmm. I wanted to be a fine artist. Uh-huh. But my portfolio was sent by accident to a school of animation, and and I found that it was like the ultimate art form. But I've always wondered, like, what if you took Rodin or Degas? and brought them back to life and gave them the tools of animation, but did not show them any any animated movies, but just showed them what's possible. Where would they take it? Mm. What would they do with it? Right. And I'm still very much driven in that path. And so I, I look for a new freedom in terms of drawing and expression and creativity that can be had in hand-drawn animation and yet letting cg continue to grow i mean at the beginning of this film i was presented with the option pei lin chow said from pearl okay so what do you want to do you want to do it in 2d or 3d you know in cg and i said well the subtlety of the performance in this film is so delicate all of the little intricacies that we have to build into Fei-Fei's face is like building a little Lamborghini under the skin there. And it's right. going to be really important to get all that subtlety to control that in animation. I knew how difficult that can be to rely on people that are following up and clean up and to rely on all the animators to have that kind of skill level that I just thought, oh, I don't know if I can count on the animation delivering if we did it by hand with a, crew the size we would need and then i thought also of the challenge of how do you create the equivalent of wizard of oz where they went from black and white to technicolor and we had the same challenge and it was clear that it was going to have to be something on the dark side of the moon like light emanating and you know it gave the 
Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon album cover to our production designers. It's got to be like this. And that all told me that it needed to be CG. So I've, I've never given up on hand-drawn as another wonderful path that we should be exploring and pushing beyond where it's at right now. Yeah, and it sounds like you figured out sort of how to take your whole body of knowledge and translate that over to a CG world, that it's not, you're not losing that piece of it. In some ways, it's making it easier <laughs> that, you know, if an emotion wasn't working before, you may have to redraw a whole sequence, right? Whereas in this case, it's, you know, tweaking the how an eyebrow moves or something. Yes, yeah. And we would do that. We would have a Cintiq that I look at the animation on the screen and, and I could do a little draw over and tweak it and push it, or sometimes even reanimate something just very quickly. You know, you can, you can animate really fast if it's just really rough and loose and, and uh, frame by frame do a quick little thing. And suddenly the animator can go, Oh, okay. I got it. I got it. But you haven't spent much time It's more gestural, very expressive uh, line of action kind of sketches that you might do. That's so interesting. Um, I, I want to shift gears for a minute and just ask you a couple of questions because I'm a, I'm a big Disney nerd too, and I'm just so fascinated by your, your career there. I, I want to ask first, just when you first started at the studio, this was like 1974, right? Is that right? Right. Yeah, so Walt Disney had died just eight years earlier, uh, and there's still the majority of the people that had worked right alongside him were still there and, and still in that same animation building kind of right in the center of the lot. Like, what was that experience like for you coming into that? And just what was sort of the mood like at that point? Well, I mean, I'll never forget walking into the animation building for the first time. I was 20 years old. And what hit me first was the smell of cigarettes pencil shavings and scotch (laughs) (laughs) it was was kind of this artistic incense Uh because my dad was an artist and i grew up in a home where his studio had the smell of half and half pipe tobacco and pencil shavings and as soon as i walked in it was like wow this is a place for making art yeah this is a place where artists come and there is a level of expectation of excellence. And I just got that from the smell of the place. Wow. And it wasn't just the smell of the place. It was the spirit of Walt was so clearly there talking to Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston and Eric Larson and all of the, at that time, I think there was eight, old men john lounsbury was still there but they talked about walt like he was there wow i mean they would describe the way he would come in and you know that they that he was so sparing with any compliments you never heard anything good about your work except he would tell somebody else and then you would hear it from them but never from walt and how the power he had in challenging and driving that team to excellence was really remarkable. I mean, that he, he physically would drive artists at night to Chenard Art Institute so that he could build that team so that they were able to do Snow White. Yeah. I mean, the difference from those, the silly symphonies to these features like Pinocchio and Bambi, that required great observation and anatomy and the kind of skills that people didn't equate with animation and what was driving them always to excellence they always talked about plushing every every person that touched a shot had to make it better you had to plush it uh, and that that came from walt so i i sensed that that spirit and took every thing that they said and i wrote it down I remember Ollie saying to me, Glenn, don't animate what the character is doing. Animate what the character is thinking and feeling. Mm. And he looked at my face and he knew that I didn't quite get it because I was 21 years old. Right. And he said, you know, you're not going to understand this right now, but someday you will. Someday, someday you'll get it. 
and um and I did I started to get it and I shared that with with our team but I remember early on on Tangled when it was still called Rapunzel and I was designing a Rapunzel and we had done our first animation test and uh it was Rapunzel's CG face was lit and she was moving and you could see freckles on her face and shimmering silk fabric and things that would have been impossible with hand drawn and and I couldn't wait to show Ollie. He was ninety three. Yeah. And he came in in a wheelchair. And I said, Ollie, I want to show you something. And I showed him this shot of Rapunzel and it was moving and and Ollie said, Glenn, what I'm wondering is what is she thinking? <laughs> it was like, oh yes, it, and it's always about that. The, you know, the the exterior is is only a window to the interior, yeah. and you've got to be using it that way. It was it was such a great reminder. That's so great. Well, I want to ask you too, just one of your kind of more famous characters. You know, among many, you designed so many great ones during the kind of Renaissance period. But the beast comes to mind for me and just sort of how multifaceted that character is and that, you know, he needs to be very ferocious and, you know, overpowering in the first act, but then he needs to really soften up. And just before this call, I wanted to watch the ballroom sequence again, just to sort of, you know, get a sense for what you might be going through, not watching as an audience member, but trying to think, okay, I'm going to talk to Glenn Keane. <laughs> like, what was he thinking as he, as he animated this? And I'm amazed at just sort of, all the little subtleties of, you know, the way his, his eyes move or, you know, the smile or just all these different things. And then it continues out onto the, the balcony as, you know, he's trying to get Belle to stay in all this and then lets her go. Figuring out that character, like, I, I feel like it's if, if it's a human, you have so many choices or, you know, Ariel's a, a human with fins for her lower half. But like, how did you figure out <laughs> how the beast was going to be. That feels like such a challenge. Well, yeah, a, a design of a character, I, it's a weird thing to say, Heath, but I, I believe the characters exist before you design them, hmm. which I never would have said that because it sounds insane. But it's been my experience because you might do hundreds of designs and people are going, well, that looks good. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not it. Like, what's wrong with it? It's just not them, you know. And I had done hundreds of drawings of the beast, and yeah. and I had uh, a buffalo head on my wall, and a wild boar head, and I had photos of gorillas, and I mean, my room was filled with animals because I didn't want it to be just an invented creature. Right. It needed to be something from Earth, not an alien, because it's easy to come up with an alien, but it's hard to do something that looks like it was part of something god made here on earth yeah so i had my my assistant came in and said so uh glenn what what's the beast gonna look like i, said, I don't know i don't know like i kind of like this buffalo head it's got sadness to it and this wild boar with the tusks and i'm sketching it but it's got to have this expressive brow like emotions after you gotta really see it and feel it so the gorilla brow is really powerful and and, and these horns are a combination of horns and the mane of a lion. And, and I was thinking, oh, Bell's never going to fall in love with this guy. I'll give him cow ears. So I <laughs> kind of softened the cow ears. And so, But there's a prince trapped inside. And so the eyes of a man, And as I drew the eyes, I, I just suddenly saw a beast like looking right at me. Wow. That, I said, this is it. This is him. He said, oh, that, that's that's the beast. This, yes, that's. There he is. <laughs> I knew it. I knew that was him. And it happened almost as fast as I just described it to you there yeah. a few minutes longer. But then you have a, a character that you can believe in. Right. I mean, it really is about this sincerity. Can you believe the character? And then, then you start to draw it from, well, all I can say is that it comes from more from my heart than from what I see in my mind though. That's not everybody animates like that. I mean, Eric Larson, I remember we were all together and I was pretty young, probably 22, 23. And he said, so in animation, you, you visualize it and then you draw what you 
you see? And I said, uh, I don't see it. He said, well, of course you do. I said, actually, no, I don't. Well, then how could you draw it? You, you must see it. Hmm. I said, no, I, I really don't. And we argued about that. And I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I see something when I don't. He said, well, how do you draw it? I said, well, I don't know, but I know a feeling and there's an emotion and there, and it's actually in the drawing it that it starts to reveal itself. And your question about how do you find those emotions, it's at the beginning, I didn't know. It was changing the mouth shape, drawing it so that there was this quizzical smile or worry or curiosity, you know, all these different things, love. And you you discover it's like it it's shining back at you. It's mm. it's revealing itself to you. But acting moments in that that film were very deep. I remember when Beast is going to let Belle go free. Yeah. And he knows, she doesn't know that when that final petal falls, he will remain a beast forever. And he can't tell her because then she won't go and be with her father. And he wants the best for her. And it's a true act of love. And trying to animate that. And I remember just having Beast look down at the flower and struggle with letting her go. And and I couldn't draw it. I pressed harder on my pencil. I, I tried to draw the emotion and and I, I felt like I, I could not succeed in communicating everything I wanted in that. But sometimes it's uh, somebody else's perspective, a fresh eye that that sets you free. Unfortunately for me, I never, it's the way it is. I animated in the movie, but then I watched the live action version and there's a moment where the beast, the actor is at that place. And instead of looking down at the rose, he looks up Hmm. and it's like, it's like a prayer. Yeah. Oh, why didn't I do that? Oh, give me the shot back. Let me reanimate it. It was it was such it was such a great acting moment. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Uh, just to wrap it up, I want to ask one last thing, and that's you know you had an amazing career at Disney and worked on you know some of the most beloved films really of all time. I mean, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Tarzan, Tangled. You you chose to leave in 2012 and go out on your own and start your own animation studio. And I just wonder, you know, that that feeling of, you know, Disney is kind of the pinnacle animation house and, and you were at the top of your game there. What was it that made you want to venture out on your own? And has it been rewarding for you, you know, having the, the benefit of, you know, eight or nine years of hindsight now? Um, yes, it has been incredibly rewarding, but I didn't know what it was going to mean. But I really do believe that the very best things in life are a gift, the things that you don't work for. I mean, I work as hard as I possibly can, but the best things are things that you never expected to come along. Uh I've really lived my life that way. There's a faith that every good gift is from above. And I expect it. I wait for it. I look for it. But I, I got to a point at Disney where I really felt the need for not knowing what was coming next, the the scariness of that. Yeah. I gave a book to anybody that worked with me called Art and Fear. And it's the fear is such a necessary element in art. Picasso said, uh, I'm always doing that, which I don't know how to do in order that I may learn how to do it. And I just love that idea of where can animation go? Yeah, that's really pushing those boundaries out. And like some of what I was talking about with uh, Rodin or Degas, that was like, wow, what what's out there? And um, Linda, my my wife, she could see I was restless and I was thinking about leaving. And she said, well, where would you go? What would you do? I said, I, I don't know. Google. Google, they don't do animation. I said, I know, but wouldn't it be wonderful to take the principles of communication through character and emotion and take it places that they don't do that and and see what you could bring? And 
So anyway, with no promises for anything, I had no idea what was going to happen, but I knew I needed to leave. And my wife has always been a great partner and brave to take a step out with me. And so we left. And uh, the first thing that happened, amazingly, was uh, Google um, (laughs) had developed a, a system for animating in 360 degrees that you had no cut uh-huh. and, but you'd have to do it at 60 frames per second instead of 24 and and that you would follow the animation all different 360 every which way and do it up from your phone and and i just like this is insane how could i possibly do this how am i going to figure timing out but but uh jenny rim my son max and i went up to google and we did this little film duet and it was such a wonderful, wonderful experience taking animation there. And then after that, we met the head of the Paris Ballet who was doing a project up there and he invited us to do a short little film in the Paris Ballet. And once again, it was taking animation to a place. I mean, no animators had been inside the Garnier Opera House in Paris, but there I was and I was working with a, a ballerina and animated a short little film. And, and then Kobe calls. And you're taking animation to your basketball, you know, to the NBA. And and I, I just love the, I, I guess, the scariness of it all. And as you started off, you know, our conversation about how it feels like directing something uh, for the first time, that all kind of fits. Yeah. That all sort of fits for me. And I just want to keep growing. And, uh, you know, as Picasso said, uh, I keep referring to Picasso because he's such a uh, forward-thinking person. But he said, when I was young, I could draw and paint like Raphael, but it's taken me a lifetime to learn to draw like a child. <laughs> and I, I realized, yeah, it takes a lot of years to grow young. Yeah. And, and I think that that's the path. I just want to keep following that, that adventure. All right, Glenn Keane. There we go, huh? How good was that? I learned so, so much from him. Not just about animation or movie making, but life. I mean, he has such a different way of seeing the world, but in such a positive way. I mean, right from the first question, you know, how's your quarantine going? And he says, it's a sunset that never ends. Like, wow, of course. It's pretty cool. I'm very happy that happened. You can hear it in my voice, I'm sure. I hope you guys got something out of it, too. I will not have a new show this Thursday. I am taking my first day off since starting this podcast back in May. I'm going to enjoy Thanksgiving with my family, and uh, I will not be talking to you guys on Thursday. I will be back next Monday with a new show, so make sure you subscribe for that. And before that, I will be back on Sunday in your inbox if you sign up for the Quarantine Creatives newsletter. Go to heathrasella.com and you can enter your email right on the homepage there and get the newsletter. This week, it's going to be a whole write-up about Glenn. There's going to be links to some of the things he talked about, video clips, pictures, all sorts of cool stuff. So make sure you sign up to get the Quarantine Creatives newsletter right in your inbox. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. Thank you for sticking with me for... If this is your first episode, welcome. If you've been here from the beginning, thank you. Be safe. Be smart. I will talk to you guys next week. Stay safe.